This is the Sport Lifestyle Podcast, where the trade of sport collides with fashion and innovation. Your hosts, Mike Gugat, Neil Schwartz, and John Peters, break down news, discuss trends, and interview industry influencers. The Sport Lifestyle Podcast is on now. This is episode 19 of the Sport Lifestyle Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Gugat. Poobah, I went out to dinner with two of your biggest fans. Well, one is actually a fan. He listens to the podcast regularly, but I actually had to make a commitment to them both because his lovely wife is from Boca, so we are not allowed to make fun of Boca anymore. Well, tell me a little bit more about my uh, my biggest fans. I'm always uh, I'm always happy to hear about those kinds of things. Oh, boy. You're... Exactly. I, I'm going to pass on that because at some point you're actually going to meet him. But uh, uh, yeah, no, he, he it was unbelievable the fact that he he could quote back to me certain things that we've talked about. It's relevant to the work he does. And uh, but anyway, his wife is so lovely. I will stop making fun of Boca. But I told them that didn't mean we would stop making fun of you. Well, I'm hoping you don't make fun of me because if that happens, then I'm going to know something's really wrong. But I am down here in Boca. I spent the beginning parts of the week up in uh, Disney with my grandchildren and kids, and I had a wonderful time, and now I'm back to work. It's a beautiful time of the year. I know you guys up in the Northeast got slammed yesterday with snow and lousy weather. My daughter told me it took her almost two and a half hours to get home in uh, midtown Manhattan. So yeah. DC you know, it's government good to be down here in this beautiful sunshine right now. Let me down, or I guess the federal government, the Hill. Uh, we had a day of walking on the Hill yesterday, and and uh, almost slipped and fell two or three different times because it was so icy. I thought for sure DC would have shut down, but unfortunately they didn't. So uh, it's good we had the NHL and others on the Hill uh, yesterday promoting physical activity and 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 a lot of other good stuff coming out of that meeting. So um, I'm ready for Thanksgiving, Mike. What, what about yourself? I'm I'm getting ready and uh, doing the the, the most uh, non traditional Thanksgiving. We're actually heading to Paris, but uh, we'll uh, we'll see how the podcast records from there. But in the meantime, on this episode, we're actually going to talk about JP's day on the hill. Neil was out at Winter OR. We'll talk about pop ups and high tops. We'll talk about racial tensions that have been exposed at Adidas, and uh, who will be the comeback brand of the year. We'll ask the poobah. You guys ready to get going? You bet. The Sport Lifestyle Podcast is sponsored by Sporting Goods Business Media. The SGB Today and SGB Update daily email newsletters are the leading sources for news, information, and trends that are shaping our industry. To subscribe, just go to www.sgbmedia.com and click on subscribe. Again, that's sgbmedia.com and click on subscribe. All right, JP. So you were on the hill yesterday. You told us how uh, yucky it was as far as uh, you know sloshing around in the the snow, but uh, you were there, you know, purposefully. And and there's you know we've talked about the fit bill before, but where do things stand? And and how were your meetings yesterday? And if listeners want to get involved and help support passage, how do they do it? Yeah. So, well, let me take that one first. Just as a reminder, you know, the FIT Act, P-H-I-T, Personal Health Investment Today, uh, as as we've talked about before, it's um, 
uh, a preventative measure to uh, to healthcare, and it would expand the de- IRS definition of what could be used for your flexible spending account or health savings account FSA HSA as they're known uh, for activities. So uh, footwear and apparel unfortunately don't count. Uh, however, you know right now as the bill stands uh, in the Senate. If, if passed today, you would be able to use your flexible spending account uh, for your yoga membership or your baseball bat or your race registration, et cetera. Uh, and, and, you know, obviously the past couple of years, we've been on a, a high horse about um, shouting to the world that with, with club sports and even SoulCycle and all these things that are popping up, there is a barrier, a financial barrier to entry for a lot of uh, middle America and, and the lower class of America. So yesterday we, we hosted uh, Bill Felder lobbyist, SFIA, along with the National uh, Coalition for Promoting Physical Activity, uh, hosted several meetings on the Hill, had a, uh, a, a hearing with, with some senators and, and congressmen and women, as well as uh, the NHL came down to, to talk about the importance of physical activity, as well as some other members and doctors, et cetera. A great day on the Hill. Uh, my group was um, was very interesting because we had uh, the uh, CEO, a fo- co-founder of Mind Body, Blake Beltram, who's, if you don't know him, we'll, we'll definitely bring him on the podcast. He's one of the nicest individuals in this industry by far I've, I've ever met. Uh, and he, he created this vast platform known as Mind Body, which is uh, a cloud management system for, for studios and boutiques and even big box gyms. So they do everything from payments to uh, scheduling, and, and they just came out with an awesome app. I think they touch about, um, I want to say 15 to 20 million consumers, I think he said. Uh, so they're publicly traded as well. I mean, they're massive, massive corporation. Um, but so we went to, you know, the, the Oregon uh, representatives, California and others to really just talk about uh, the FIT Act, not just from a consumer angle, because that's very clear, but also from a small business point of view. He works with over 40,000 small businesses, um, you know, anything from a yoga to spin to cycle studio and uh, the impact that it would have for not only the business owners, but for the people that are working for those business owners. So the, the impact was tremendous. The, the meetings went very well. Uh, as things stand right now today, uh, there, there will be, hopefully, fingers crossed, a bill passed later this year to fund the government. Uh, I, I'm, I'm pretty confident that something like that will pass. Hopefully, we'll see. But if that does, we're very hopeful because we've already passed the FIT bill for the first time ever through the House that we are going to able be able to package that with the spending bill and get it passed this year. So fingers crossed, if, if, if you want to get involved, the, the hashtag is pass, P-H-I-T, pass fit, uh, fit, fit.com or SFIA.org. And, and there's tons of information. There's even a great um, utility tool on there that it, you can automatically send a letter to your local representative or your congressman or woman to uh, to make your voice heard. And so we're at a critical juncture here. I, I'm, I'll get off my soapbox. If, if our lobbyist hears this, he'll he'll uh, think I'm going for his job because I'm, I'm talking too much. So uh, Neil, Mike, any immediate reaction to the way it went today and to the, to the day yesterday? John, you met with some senators, correct? Uh, correct. And, and a lot of, um, you know, Senator John Thune, who's the biggest sponsor right now. Right. We, we met with uh, and a lot of staff members. They're, they're actually voting uh, and a little bit crazy, as you might imagine, in D.C. with, with some of the things going on. And yeah. Stan, it, 
Yeah, so we didn't meet with all the senators that we wanted to, but we definitely saw their, their staff. John, it would seem like this is such a kind of a bipartisan kind of a bill that's something that, you know, helps a large variety of the country. It doesn't matter, you know, if you're a blue state, red state, Republican, Democrat, you know, you would think that they would want to jump onto this really quickly and, and try to, you know, maybe get a quick win across the aisle, so to speak. Um, did you get that feeling at all? Yeah, that's interesting you say that. I, I think everyone's kind of in agreement that came up that point about bipartisan support because this is a bipartisan bill, one of the few that's out there. And um, it's, a, it's a great cause, right? So that came up several times and, you know, a lot of head shaking and nodding and, and a lot of follow up for us to do. But everyone's in agreement that at a point like where the country is today, that everyone could use a, a, a quote unquote win on yes. something that's bipartisan and, and, a, yes. and a feel good win. I mean, this is a feel good um you know, Bill, I think. I'm going to jump in and, and just uh, add a little that, uh, you know, it's funny that they call it a, a lame duck and we, we celebrate wins during a, a lame duck, but it will certainly be again win regardless of uh, uh, when it does happen. So Neil, you're out at Winter OR. What, uh, what did you observe? Yeah, I went out to the Winter OR show. It was last week in Denver. And I have to be very honest that I, I was kind of going out there in kind of a foul or negative mood. Um, I wasn't sure what this show like you. Well, you know me, I try to keep it positive a little bit on the cynical side at times, but (laughs) so I went out to the show, um, you know, clearly it was um, not all that well attended. Um, There was a lot of exhibitors that are traditionally at the outdoor show. were not there. I'm not sure that the uh, outdoor retailer group did a really good job of explaining what this show was all about why it was added, what the purpose was. Um, there were really none of the, I would say, usual uh, players there. I mean, you didn't see Patagonia and you didn't see Columbia, the North Face. Um, you know, and I can go on and on with a lot of the big, uh, a lot of the big brands that weren't there. But what I did find is the people that were there were really able to give you a little bit more time and talk to you a little bit more about, you know, what's going on out in the industry, what they're seeing, what they're hearing. And I found that to be a real positive. Uh, You know, I was out there uh, and and I just, again, you know, people were willing to talk because frankly they had more time to talk because they just didn't have the number of appointments. It wasn't the usual hustle and bustle that comes along with the summer outdoor retailer show. But but what I'm also not sure about now is what's going to happen at the end of January, February. They've got this third outdoor retailer show that's going to be dedicated more towards winter and ski. Um, so I'm a little – personally, I'm a little confused as to what, you know, what the whole agenda is here for the uh, outdoor retailer show. But while I was there, I did get to have two really good interviews. Um, I sat down with a gentleman named Lance Pinn. And Lance is someone that I met actually while I was at the Adidas Outdoor booth. And Lance is the president of a group called Brooklyn Boulders. And they started out kind of as this climbing gym idea, um, you know, in Brooklyn. And it's expanded out to so much more. It's not just about climbing anymore. It's more about, um, you know, outdoors and climbing and bouldering. But it's also a social experience. And, you know, in this day and age with things like Top Golf, and, uh, you know, John is turning on to the guys at Connect Golf, you know, people are really trying to combine activities, sports, act, leisure activities with social activities. 
And I think this is a perfect example of a, a company that is doing that. I think they've got about four centers open now, and they're probably about to open two more, um, each one getting bigger and better. Then I also sat down with a gentleman named Bill Hackett, and he's president of Theranos Outdoor. Theranos is actually a part or a division of Cherokee Brands. Um, Cherokee Brands is a large multinational uh, company that owns a number of brands, not just in the outdoor and activity sports and active spaces, but also in, you know, other casual athletic and uh, footwear spaces. So I really got a chance to talk to him also. So, um, you know, it was an interesting show for sure. Interesting couple of days. Now our listeners are going to have no incentive to listen to those interviews, but uh, Neil, I got to, I got to ask you just real quick on the show. Um, I agree with you. I, I didn't go this year. I went to, as you know, summer we were there and, and I went to the one, the other one earlier this year. And I, I just felt like I, there's this um, tapering off effect, if you will. I, I just I, I didn't go on purpose because I, I agree with you. I think they have a an identity crisis on their hands a little bit, and it sounds like based on the brands that were missing and and kind of the maybe probably some of the key buyers that weren't there, it sounds kind of like that's true. Would you agree with with that identity crisis um, for for this? I think that's a good way to put it. Um, I did not know when I, you know, I looked at the exhibitor list and I was a little disappointed, frankly, um, when I left. Um, I was less disappointed when I came back home because I did get a chance to speak to a number of people I don't normally get to speak to. So that was a good thing. But I think it really does have an an identity crisis. You know, which shows are what? Which shows should we be at? Which shows do we not go to be at? You know, it's hard to go to three outdoor retailer shows. Um, in the course of 12 months. And, you know, I, I do think they've got a little bit of an identity crisis, but I also think they've got a little bit of a kind of a trade show crisis. Too, Let me John. jump in on the trade show crisis. And this is what I think is also interesting that one of your interviews is with a climbing facility that is totally indoors. And in many respects, a lot of those folks aren't going outdoors and here the show is outdoor retailer. And then if you look at skiing um, as a category, Neil, you'd be able to speak more intelligently to the actual sales numbers, but it is interesting to see the growth of that sport and the mountain sports in places like China. And I wonder if as a solution to that identity crisis or an opportunity to create sort of a more international show which I believe I've never attended ISPO is like, uh, it seems like they could actually find a way to make, you know, at least one of the three shows more international and have programming that's more international. So, you know, brands could benefit from their international partners. It's probably not a bad idea. The other thing that really struck me and, you know, the Lance Penn interview really kind of took me in a different place. But, you know, when people think of the outdoor retailer show, the first word is outdoor. Well, if you look at, you know, some of the major metropolitan markets around this country, places like New York, you know, with Brooklyn and Queens, with just, you know, population that's just growing um, by incredible numbers, Um, Chicago, Detroit, Los Angeles, all of these, you know, metro areas. And in some cases, they're not known necessarily, although Los Angeles could be, you know, as bastions of outdoor participation. So, you know, this, you know, I just think the outdoor industry in in a way is reinventing itself or has to, but I also think they're going to need to reinvent themselves, you know, in terms of the outdoor retailer show. Let's talk about uh, retail reinventing itself in the age of digital natives. John, let's uh, let's touch on the uh, Facebook pop-ups. Yeah, Mike. So the story came across and and, uh, I don't know, maybe about a week ago now, uh, Facebook is going to launch... uh, 
this this thing called the market at Macy's, and and what that really is uh, are, are pop up stores within Macy's that's going to feature about 100 different brands from the hottest brands on Instagram and Facebook right now. Probably a lot of brands we've never heard of. I, I definitely haven't heard a lot of these, but they're going to to test this. It's already being tested in, in a bunch of different cities until February, and they're testing it with uh, nine different key brick and mortar stores, uh, Macy's, with it inside. So the market at Macy's is, is what it's going to be called. And just so much to unpack here, but I'll try to be brief. It, it's just so interesting that, uh, one, you have this, this tech giant who uh, known as Facebook is is under all this pressure and heat from from uh, misinformation and the Russia scandal and all these things that you know to me this says they're they're out of room to grow and and they're trying to supplement and and complement their ad business uh, that bringing foot traffic to Macy's it's it's actually a perfect partnership in, in in a lot of senses for you know Macy's to try to compete in the world of Amazon as we always talk about. And, you know, I think the other thing here is, is the impact of these, these micro businesses or these startups or upstarts, whatever you want to call them, um, that are crushing it on Instagram. Mike, you, you alluded, you called them digitally native brands, which is probably a better way to put it. Uh, one of them, just to give you guys a sense is love your melon. Uh, Love Your Melons, an apparel brand dedicated uh, to giving a hat to every child uh, battling cancer. And, you know, they have about 600,000 Instagram followers. I had never heard of them. Um, now, now I know them. Now our listeners know who they are. But, you know, think about the analytics that Facebook has from from Instagram sh- Instagram shopping and the the ability to create synergies around that with within a store like Macy's that still has foot traffic and distribution. Um, I just think this is a, going to be a win win partnership and um, it's a direct shot. Make no mistake. It's a direct shot across the bow to, to Walmart and Amazon. And, and how can Facebook leverage their relationships with all these small business pages? Um, this is the start of, of what I believe will be uh, Facebook retail stores we will be walking in one day. Um, and we can touch on their virtual reality stuff too, but, but any thoughts on this guys? Um, you know, yesterday, it's funny that you were talking about that. I was having a conversation, um, you know, with a couple of different people, especially I met somebody at the outdoor retailer show, um, from Ralph Lauren brands. And, you know, they of course have chaps and Ralph Lauren and, you know, they're really looking at the outdoor business. But one of the things we were talking about was it seems as though those brands that are willing to kind of you know, jump on with like strange bedfellows, if you know what I mean. You know, it's, you know, don't think that, you know, it always has to be an outdoor brand mixed with an outdoor brand. It could be, you know, an outdoor brand mixed with a traditional fashion brand. And they brought up a couple of interesting examples. Unfortunately, I didn't write them down. I wish I did. But, you know, right now, I think we are in this era of, you know, brands getting together that might have been considered strange bedfellows in the past. I, uh, I, I think that there's that kind of opportunity, the exposure to those brands and clearly Macy's has had issues over the last few years as promotional as they've been. Uh, so to have, you know, something unique like this, I think really helps them a lot and then factor in the insights that, you know, our, our behaviors to impulsively like something that we see, you know, whether it be on Facebook or Instagram, I mean, that, those are valuable insights I would assume. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, the other thing to point out here is, um, you know, while Facebook isn't a charity, it, they they are paying for all 100 businesses within the market. That's they're paying Macy's and covering that bill. So I thought that was super interesting. I, I think they're playing the long game here, and uh, you know, I'm sure Facebook will will get them back on the advertising that these brands ultimately spend on their platform. But 
And and real real quick with all the discounts and coupons, Macy's is paying the customers to take the product out of the stores, correct? Exactly. There you go. <laughs> well, I think if you read some of the you know the latest retail or um, you know retail or stock reports and earnings reports, and look, we all know we've talked about how you know retail or earnings and actual performance can be two separate things, but you know things have been going a little bit better. On Nordstrom's had a slight a, a slight miss you know, on revenue, but they believe that, you know, going forward, they're in a much better place. Macy's also going forward believes they're in a much better place. So I think there are, you know, I think there are some of these retailer opportunities. And I think, you know, it does make a lot of sense though for Facebook to, you know, try to see the market as best they can. I I don't, I, you know, we're we're in a strange new world or a brave new world for lack of a better word, I guess. For sure. And speaking of one of those digitally native brands, and it wouldn't be an episode of the sport lifestyle podcast if we didn't talk about all birds, which is yet to become a sponsor of our show. Um, but, uh, (laughs) news came out that, uh, they've got a high top sneaker now. And so my question to my co-host, and I'll certainly answer it myself, buy them. Would you accept them as a gift or pass? Who wants to go first? I want, I want to hear you, Neil, you're the most fashionable on this podcast. Yeah, this is funny. This is a little bit like the game they play on the on the Howard Stern show called uh, F Marry Kill. I don't necessarily have to get into what each one's of those uh means. Did you just quote Howard Stern? <laughs> well, you know, instead of bringing that up. Did that just happen? Can we can we cut that right. out? Um well I, I for me I'm a hard pass. I'm a kill. Um you know, I don't necessarily like hard high top shoes. Um I'm not sure that, you know, that is what I would call a good extension of the line. Although I, I guess they, you know, they seem to have been making a, a lot of good decisions, you know, up till now, but I'm a hard pass on the high top all birds. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a hard pass as a, as a user. I would disagree with you, Neil. I think, I think it's a genius move. Um, it, it, it goes right with the fashion of, of what a lot of people are wearing today. I mean, if you think about how hot that Timberland boot was, right, that whole, you know, classic look, I, I think they, they release it at a great time in, in terms of the season as well. Um, I think it's going to sell like hotcakes. I, I'm not a buyer. I'll continue to wear the tree birds, which are to this date, the most, one of the most comfortable shoes I've, I've owned. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's going to do really well. I mean, I personally would like to see all birds get into, you know, look, the comfort thing clearly is where they're at. You know, what I would like to see them do is getting into something that, you know, has that same comfort components, but a little bit more support. Um, I did wear them the second day of the OR show, you know, and after a few hours on my feet, I did find myself, you know, having a little bit more foot pain because I just didn't have the same kind of support, you know, that I generally like to have. But look, you know, look, I'm also a little older, probably out of the main all birds demographic. But, you know, I would like to have seen them gone, you know, into that uh, kind of, you know, kind of a subcategory, so to speak. But, you know, they've made a lot of good decisions. And uh, so I have no reason to suspect that this also won't be a good decision. It's amazing for the guy that took a hard pass how much he could talk about them, though. I have I have a pair of the short, you know, I've got a pair of the I've got yeah. the all wool ones and I every time I wear them people, you know, call out, "Hey, you know, are those all birds?" and, you know, of course I got to give them the whole song and dance. Yeah. Well, if anybody's interested, I'd buy them if I weren't the father of an 11th month, month old kid, so I'll accept them <laughs> as a gift because, you know, <laughs> hey, I'm I'm open to anything free. Uh, clearly. <laughs> yeah, clearly. Hey, let's move on to a more uh, serious subject and and I would love to get your guys' opinion on this. Uh, I guess Wednesday, a story came out in the Oregonian 
that uh, Adidas, uh, there was a letter, I guess, sent to executives there that, you know, really uh, delved into kind of a culture of racial tensions and bullying and, you know, you know, what I would liken to, you know, like a command and control culture. And, uh, you know, based on this coming on the back of the stories that came out of Nike and those who, you know, were uh, uh, relieved of duty there, um, you know, is, is this problem bigger than just those brands? Mike, can I ask you a question? You worked at Adidas. How many years did you work at Adidas, Mike? I was there for almost five. How, how long did you work at Mizuno before that? Uh, if I do the math on that, I think 12, 11, 12 years. Okay. So, so you, I'm going to kick this back to you and I'm going to ask you the question. I mean, you were in, you know, you were in an environment that was highly male dominated and uh, both, you know, in the sneaker side and also, of course, on the team sports side and running side at Mizuno. I mean, I mean, does this, any of this surprise you really? I, it, it, it does, it doesn't, and it does. So, so let me back up. I, you know, most of my career has been in the, the run space and the run space is, you know, if you look at the, the analysis, at least at the specialty uh, channel is about a 55, almost 60% female, you know, consumer. Um, and, you know, and then you look at those other categories that tend to skew, you know, more, you know, male to female in both places. Uh, when I first started, it was very much dominated by men in the organization when I was at Mizuno. And as the Mizuno brand grew, our, our teams grew and our tech reps and our sales reps, you know, we, we, you know, became more split, uh, gender wise. And then at Adidas, uh, when I got there, it actually was very male. And, you know, when we, led up to the launch of boost and we were able to add folks to the team, you know, we really did, uh, uh, shift things. And there were, you know, uh, you know, quite a few, uh, uh, you know, women in senior leadership, uh, roles, but I, I think that, you know, that that's one part of it. I think the other part of it is, is that, you know, we've kind of come out of that place of the, the seventies, eighties and nineties where management was meant to create profit through efficiencies and through those efficiencies, you know, the leadership style tended to be fear and bullying and command and control. And I think if you want to keep and retain good people in your organization, clearly there's examples of how that has failed. I think Volkswagen is probably one of the best examples where folks were, you know, uh, uh, made decisions that they shouldn't have done. And so I think what will be interesting is to see how Adidas responds to this. You know, as I was leaving and Mark King was coming in, one of the big pushes was how do we Americanize the brand? And I think it's interesting that came out of that article. You've got a now president of the company that is, you know, from New Zealand. You've got a head of sales that I believe is either Irish or British. And you've got a head of basketball that is is British, you know, all three of which are white. So, um, you know, and then I think with the the you know, understanding kind of culturally where a lot of the business is now being driven and, and how much more fashion is driving sport and the, the tastemakers, if you will, you know, have really been, you know, African-American. And so I think one of the big opportunities is for brands like Adidas is in their own retail space. And I think that's where I saw diversity and opportunity. But the thing I, I, I've failed to observe was how many of those people were starting in their retail stores and actually being coached and developed into leaders to work in other parts of the business. So, you know, if there's an opportunity for them to write this ship, I think it would be there. 
you know, it was it was interesting because I think it was kind of struck me that all of the, you know, the top, uh, you know, top of the food chain at, at their major divisions were all not American, and yet, you know, they're trying to Americanize themselves. I mean, it's, you know, a little bit uh, oxymoronic, I guess, if that's an expression. If not, I just made it up. So, I'm, yeah, I I'm mean, not surprised. Look, I I think. When when you sent me the the news piece, Mike, I I kind of shook my head and I read it a little, you know, kind of skimmed the rest. I, I just, I, I guess I'm not I'm I'm not 100 not surprised. Um, I think it's pretty pathetic, actually, quite frankly, to 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 a lot of not just you know the Nike stuff and Adidas and and others and you know there's an Under Armour story in similar vein. Um, I just think that uh, how many more times are we gonna sit around? And and kind of look at these stories as brands in the industry and be be surprised. I mean, at some point, something's got to give and change, and and I think it'll come up in the sales. I mean, ultimately, at the end of the day, we we talked about the Kanye Yeezy thing and the Trump White House experience, and you know, it, who is your customer? Who is your core consumer? Uh, they're going to wake up the hard way or, or, or realize sooner than later that that they have to be attuned to that. And and by the way, not that Kanye listens to this podcast, he might. But did anybody find it interesting that he backtracked on everything? Did you guys pick that up? I did. So I don't know if Yeezy called him and said, hey, sh- shut up or backtrack. I don't know what's going on. Maybe he just heard our podcast and, and he found out who our customer was. I, I actually think he got called out by a fellow um, fellow hip-hop star. I forgot who it was. Um, somebody who I guess uh, – somebody who I guess Kanye respects. And uh, he basically got co- – well – he got called out and, uh, you know, and I think he uh, somehow or another, maybe a rock fell on his head and uh, he realized that he was, you know, taking, he, he was taking this thing in the wrong direction for both, I think him, his brand personally, and also the Yeezy brand for Adidas. Well, speaking of, of brands and kind of where they are, and this maybe presents a comeback opportunity for the the Adidas brand, but uh, Poobah, we got a couple minutes here. Uh, tell us about uh, you know what, what your what your vision is for the comeback brand of the year. Well, I think uh, I'd like to, uh, as this is our second season of the Sport Lifestyle Podcast, you know, I think I'd like to create uh, some awards. Um, you know, everybody else has the award show. There's, you know, I don't have to go on the Oscars and the Emmys and the People's Choice. And so, you know, I'm looking for a name for the uh, Sport Lifestyle Awards. Uh, you know, my uh, my my grandson said, call them the Poobies. But uh, I'm not sure uh, that's the way I want to go here. But let's just say for the, uh, I want to start not, off not, with the not, uh, best footwear. Not happening. What? Go ahead. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. With the best uh, footwear comeback brand award, I thought that'd be our initial uh, kind of kickoff category. You know, I really have three brands that I think uh, really stand out to me this year. Um, you know, as as doing a great job in comeback. Now, some of these brands have smaller uh, smaller bases to work from, so it's easier to kind of push sales around. But the three brands that are getting the nomination for best footwear comeback brand of the year are Crocs. Puma and Fila. And, uh, you know, it's been interesting that both of those brands, uh, you know, really different in a lot of ways, although there are a lot of crossovers between Fila and Puma. But, um, you know, Crocs is kind of bringing back that, you know, the clog, the the molded rubber clog. And it's just had a great couple of quarters, um, great with sandals and all that. But um, 
the uh, official accounting firm uh, is coming and bringing the envelope to me. And the winner is of the Best Footwear Comeback Brand Award uh, for 2018 is Fila. Um, Fila is up over 33% um, year to date. Um, their disruptor shoe, disruptor two shoe, um, has constantly been at the top of the charts um, when it comes to casual athletic footwear, and uh, they've just done a wonderful job of really reviving that brand. Uh, can't say how lo- how sustainable it might be. Um, both Crocs and Puma could be, uh, you know, longer sustainable. But for 2018, I'm giving the uh, best footwear brand comeback award to uh, Fila. So uh, congratulations to them. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Neil, I, I, I know you're in Florida. I did, you guys historically have had trouble counting things. That's rough. I'm very curious on how we got there. Uh, Vans, my case, did not, didn't even make it into the nominations, apparently. I, I don't consider them a comeback brand because they've always kind of been there um, and all that. This has been – I'm looking for somebody that's that's been over a shorter period of time and uh, you know making a uh, – you know, making a big comeback and, and yeah, but that, that, I love the shot you just took on Florida and counting things though. Let's yeah. Let's so, so between <laughs> now and the next episode, when Neil actually uh, manages the, the apparel brand of the year champion, um, we'll, uh, come back, come back brand, yeah, come back brand <laughs> for apparel champion. Um, yeah. we'll, uh, we'll, we'll touch on it then, but let's get to our interviews. Hi, this is Neil Schwartz, and welcome back to the Sport Lifestyle Podcast. I'm here at the 2008 Winter Outdoor Show in Denver, Colorado, and I'm sitting in the Adidas Outdoor booth with Lance Pinn. Lance is the president of Brooklyn Boulder. Lance, thanks for uh, joining us today. Hey, thank you for having me. Lance, can you give me a little bit of back, a little bit of background on you, and then maybe a little bit of background about Brooklyn Boulder? Oh well, I've. Uh... I've been with Brooklyn Boulders for 10 years, so there's not, uh, not too much background before that, but I went to a school called Babson College. It's an entrepreneurship school out in the Boston area, uh, and then I followed my girlfriend to New York City, and we had to make it. So uh, three years later, we figured out a way, and uh, Brooklyn Boulders was, was it. Tell me a little bit about the Brooklyn Boulders concept and really what it's all about. Well, it's evolved. Brooklyn Boulders started as just uh, New York City's first fully dedicated indoor rock climbing gym, um, but people had more ideas for how to use the space. People wanted to have events there. People wanted their youth to come to the space and get involved. People wanted to do acro yoga and Pilates and capoeira and host talks and have meetups there. So it's really become more of a community center over the years. Uh, and we think that we do the best job of really activating the micro niche art communities and, and whatnot. How many centers do you have uh, currently with Brooklyn Boulder? We have uh, four facilities with Brooklyn Boulders. Okay. One is in uh, Brooklyn, naturally, <laughs> and another one in Queens. Okay. And in between those two, we made facilities in the Boston area and in Chicago, more specifically in Somerville, Massachusetts. What's the goal? How many total facilities would you like to be at? Oh, yeah, so I'm an optimist. I'd, I'd love a million facilities. No, I think uh, I think before uh, it gets too big for, you know, uh, myself and my partners to handle, uh, it, it'll be 30 to 50 facilities. 
do you, you know, you started in New York. Some might think that's a, a kind of a weird place to start an outdoor-oriented kind of gym, social facility. Um, you know, what made you decide to start in Brooklyn, of all places? Well, that's where I lived. Okay. And I needed a rock climbing gym. Okay. I fell in love with rock climbing down in Maryland at uh, another facility. And I came back to my city that has everything, and I found out that I had to, uh, I was priced out of Chelsea Piers, and I had to go to uh, uh, New Jersey or New Rochelle to go indoor rock climbing. So uh, wanting to be an entrepreneur and provide something of value to New York City, and not really finding that in my other exploits, uh, we, we hoped that we could uh, find a, a meeting of our passion and, and uh, what the city values and needed. So. Uh, we, me and my buddies got together and, and uh, we, we made Brooklyn Borders. How'd you raise the mon- initial startup money out of curiosity? Uh, it's a long story. Um, we were able to essentially uh, take advantage of one of our partner's family business mm-hmm. that had downtime during sure. the off season. And they were able to produce, fabricate uh, the, uh, the facility for us and with us and we worked for that company too so it was we built it ourselves with our team uh, and uh, so that that's a really cost-effective way to do things and then our other partner uh, uh, Jeremy who's the CEO runs the shop here in, uh, in headquarters in Denver um, he was able to kick in some early financing and and uh, the first facility we you know we bootstrapped it uh, but it was still it was still quite an undertaking um, mostly through being resourceful what percent would you say of the business is kind of people that want to participate in these outdoor-oriented activities but necessarily don't have a place, and then the social aspects? I would say uh, you would think most people are there to rock climb, right? Uh, but uh, and, and that's true. I'd say 99% of people that come to the facility do rock climb as part of their trip. Uh, there's, there's, there's a few spectators, people, parents come in with birthday sure. parties, what have you. Um, but how they get there, how they how they get attached to the space, how people feel about being in the space also contributes a great deal. And we're heavy on art in our facilities. We have, yeah, we have uh, tremendous murals from uh, the best graffiti artists, I'll, I'll say, in the in the whole world, or at least highest caliber for sure. We were blessed by one of the the really greatest uh, New York City uh, has to offer. A gentleman, uh, we'll call him Peak. Uh, and his wife, Diva, uh, made a graffiti hall of fame in our original facility. Wow. And so the space is amazing, covered head to toe. And if you're a graffiti art fan, you would come here just, just to look at the walls, which, is, which was our idea. We're like, oh, well, the climbing walls in every climbing gym are so interesting. And if you know what you're looking at, you're, you're following all the patterns and, and, and climbing and pantomiming your climbs up the wall. But if you're new to the area, it's just a big, scary place. And it's not that interesting to you, especially if you're not climbing that day. So how can we make every inch of the space as experiential as possible? And, that's, and we luckily had this awesome resource in our buddy and his, and his network to come and grace us with work that you couldn't even these people don't do commercial work so uh, we follow the graffiti code if your work is good you have a lifetime membership at Brooklyn Boulders uh, if it is not good then it gets rolled by someone who wants to make something better and then they get the membership you talk about a membership what is your business model exactly is it membership based is it paper usage based how would you describe the business model uh, we any way you want to pay we're like Burger King that way no just kidding <laughs> uh, so we have a, a, a nice membership base um, but if you want to come in for a drop-in, we, ha- we offer that opportunity too. And it's, uh, it's about 
$135 uh, in most markets to do a drop-in. Okay. Uh, and membership is only uh, $135, maybe going to a, li- a little bit a little bit more with all this inflation we've had since the last price change and all these wonderful uh, price increases associated with uh, uh, payroll and uh, and minimums and running but, a business. Hey, you know it, it always it, it never it never costs less. <laughs> no, I wish things did cost less. Yeah, you know you've talked a little bit about most of the markets are are more urban markets. Um, is that where you really you see the the opportunities, or do you see it you know maybe branching out into more suburban type markets, or what do you see? I, it's not what I see. It's it's more like what the the data people have seen in the okay. past, like. Something like 88% of people go swimming once a year, right. and it's because there's a, a swimming pool in every 12th yard or whatever it is, and oceans, and et cetera. And most people just don't have access to climbing. Right. They don't know that they were pretty much born with the ability. Imagine, look at a baby. They have tremendous grip strength. I'm, I sell rock climbing all day long, as you can tell. I can tell. But, uh, uh, you know, there's, uh, there's just not enough access. And so as, as, uh, as access becomes more available, the spaces will fill throughout the country. And so I like the urban market. I'm a city slicker. I'm from Los Angeles and New York and Boston and Chicago. I live there too. I mean, I love being in a convenient place where you have access to anything you want to do at any time. And I don't think that trend is going away. I'm pretty sure I've heard millions of people say that we're becoming a city-heavy population and less people live outside of cities. So um, I want to make sure that these people continue to be able to have access to adventure and I think that Brooklyn Borders provides that very well in a multitude of ways. Uh, and we're going to continue to focus on major uh, cities. But that is not to say that there's not endless opportunities all across every suburb for climbing to grow. What percent of the people that come into your center are experienced climbers? And then do you offer classes? Do you teach climbing? What's, uh, you know, what's the, pr- the breakdown there? I don't have an exact uh, you know, number for you, but I'd say something like... 10% of the overall number of people that come into the space are experienced, mm-hmm. and 90%, I could be wrong by 10%, the margin That's error. That's okay, don't worry about uh, the exact are, are, uh, ex- uh, uh, yeah, Unexperienced climbers are, are 90% of the people. And, but then, then if they stay with us for a couple days, then they're, they're experienced, so um, it's, 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 it's something people are gaining access to. Now, as far as like our everyday population, our, our members make up most of the everyday population, so uh, probably, you know, 60 to 70, 80% of the people in the building at any given time are experienced. Would you say that um, the gym, or sorry, the center is more suited towards like the millennial market? Or, you know, what do you, what do you see in terms of the kinds of people that are in your centers as a general rule? Uh, yeah, it's, it, ah, they, made, they made the M word so bad. I, it's it's which, ubiquitous. Which is hilarious because I am a millennial. I'm on the, on the older end of the millennial. I have three of them, so hey. I totally understand. And so, uh, yeah, but I, I mean, the, the younger population, uh, as, as, as much as I hate to say it, uh, they're, they're going to be in power pretty soon. So we have to make sure we continue to cater um, to the people that are, you know, just uh, exploring their athleticism and uh, the type of lifestyle they want to lead. And so uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to continue to cater to the millennials in, in our centers, but it's, we're also going to, you know, continue to, to usher the children into the the generation in between into our millennial generation and, and then even beyond the, the purpose of of 
the, the thing that makes you fall in love with it, with climbing is that it's you and the wall, and it ne- the relationship never has to stop. You challenging yourself. And uh, my partner Jeremy climbs all over the world. Uh, he's an elite rock climber, climbs B11. I just have to throw that out there. And he talks about how he when he's in Font and he sees like 75 year old men spanking him up the wall because they can they've been doing it for so long and they know every little nook and cranny and they, they know exactly what to do. I mean, Greg Thompson, the CEO here at Adidas Outdoor, uh, you know, told us a lot of climbing stories. And in fact, I met with him this morning and he talked a lot about um, Brooklyn Boulder. Talk to me a little bit about the social aspect. Do you serve beer and wine? Is there food? How is that kind of handled? Uh, we are one of the best sales points for uh, pro bars in the entire United States, I've been told by the pro bar rep. Uh, no, we, we don't have a tremendous amount of food offerings, although we're looking to, to improve that. And uh, we don't serve alcohol as part of our regular offering. Now, there might be a catered event where a third party arranges for uh, bar service, and that might happen regularly in the space, and as regularly as we possibly can make it, because we're trying to cater to all kinds of audiences and expose them to the space and the love for the climbing and, and all that. But it's not something that we, we uh, offer right off the bat. And, and we have a very distinct order of operations there. Climb, then drink, in that case. Um, are you familiar with some of the other kind of models that have sprung up over the last couple of years? You have Top Golf and Golf, which you know have these giant centers where people go and they can play golf. And it's not really about the golf, it's about the social. Um, New York City, you know, where you're, you know, the New York area, they've got the, this uh, table tennis or ping pong club. Um, down, Spin. Right, down on, I forgot, like tw- in the 20s or 20 and all that. Um, also, recently I've been exposed to uh, a company called Connect Golf, who owns uh, in Midtown, they've got a center for indoor golf um, with simulators, oh, but yeah. it's very heavily social. They, they serve, you know, gourmet food, uh, beer and wine, and they can do big parties and, and corporate events. Is that something that you aspire to get to, or is that really not what you're all about? First, I have to say I'm I'm perhaps the greatest fan of Top Golf on the planet. I love going there. <laughs> Me too, by the way. I don't love blowing two hundred dollars every time that we go, so it doesn't <laughs> happen all the time. Uh, but it's uh, they have a fantastic racket there. I used to go to all kinds of. Um, uh, you know, driving ranges and having to go get the bucket of balls and, and all of the pain points they just eliminated. And so in that respect, I would love to be like Top Golf and eliminate so many of our pain points, such right. as rental shoes bother me more than any human should be bothered about anything. But like I, you know, I want to make sure that we have, we're giving the cu- customer or uh, the guest, as we call them, the best experience possible. And and so I, I scrutinize those types of uh, those types of points. But anyway, um, yes, that's a fantastic business model, serving food and beverage in association with a good time. Uh, and if we find the proper square footage arrangement, we might make that happen. But the thing is, where we are, we're not like Top Golf, where they have a captive audience out in the middle. We kind of have captive audience. People don't want to leave the building. But if you're in New York City and you're in Brooklyn, then you got gourmet everything you could want. And okay. I doubt Brooklyn Borders could do it better. Plus, the the smells might be. Um, might inhibit the enjoyment of some of our patrons because we have all kinds of dietary restrictions and needs and wants and sure. opinions. So, uh, you know, we can do best. We can make these environments and, you know, from time to time, if we want to change the environment in a non-permanent way by offering food trucks, like all of our facilities are designed to, f- to facilitate food trucks, um, then, then we go for it or we have, you know, awesome uh, vendors from around our awesome neighborhoods coming in and, and showcasing their wares. Where do you think you're going to be a year from now? Um, you said, how many do you have? You told me how many you have. We have yeah, we have four that are open. We're opening another small um, 
different version of what we do in uh, in Alston, Massachusetts, which is part of Boston, like okay. near uh, Harvard Stadium. That's going to open in January. Uh, and we're opening a large facility in North Brooklyn in the Bushwick neighborhood. Okay. Uh, hopefully towards the end of next year as well. Uh, and we have a few others that have been signed, and, and you can check out the, those online if anyone's really interested. Probably there's articles that are written about them. We try to keep it under wraps because, uh, you know, that uh, you you know, a surprise is uh, there's only so much momentum you can build for so long. Uh, but these these the reality is these facilities they take years and years and years. And there's a city that we're going to be entering in, in in 2020 that I started trying to find the space in 2010. And so if people knew about it now, then maybe they wouldn't be as psyched as if they they find out like six months ahead of time. So. I've never been in one. I would like to stop in. I am in New York frequently. Uh, personally, I am not a climber, uh, but you know, I would like to see exactly what uh, you know what you've got going on there. Can you climb a ladder? I can. Then you can climb a rock wall, guaranteed. Welcome back to the Sport Lifestyle Podcast. This is Neil, and I'm here with Bill Hackett, president of Theranko Outdoor Group. Um, we're at the uh, 2018 uh, Winter Outdoor Retailer Show, and uh, Bill, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Hey, Bill, why don't we start off a little bit by telling us a little bit about you and, and you know where, where you were before you started in the outdoor group and, and kind of your background. Great. Thank you. Um, I actually started out in the retail business, so um, started out at the May Company, at Lord & Taylor uh, for multiple years in, in the men's space. Um, I converted over to wholesale, and uh, most notably I was with Nautica, uh, Sean John, and Everlast, sure. actually, on uh, three very different types of products, um, all in sales and planning. Um, leadership teams and uh, spent additional time back in retail at Models, so r running uh, the licensing team and sporting goods. And uh, most recently, before um, I came to Theranko, I was with the Iconics brand group, actually running the men's brands and the sport brands, so in the intellectual property space. So background of retail, wholesale, and intellectual property, so working with licensees and brand management. So have kind of seen the full 360 of this business, which um, was kind of the genesis of the idea with, that we're about to talk about. Well, at some point, we're going to get back. We're going to get back to talking a little bit more about the changes that you've seen in the retail world, because you know one of the things that I talk about a lot of times, and, and I get criticized. I've used the term retail apocalypse a few times, uh, but it, it, you know maybe I've overstated a little bit, but. Um, Bill, tell us a little bit about, I guess, the outdoor group and what you're doing here with the high-tech brand. Great. Um, so, the Theranko Group is a company that has been around since uh, since the 80s. Uh, started by Haresh Tarani and uh, joined later by Mike Satola, two um, powerhouse uh, players within the business. Um, feel very fortunate to even have my name associated with both of them. Um, I brought my idea to them in, 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 with the idea that I felt that there was a big opportunity within the outdoor space. Uh, they agreed with me and we went on the hunt to look for the right brand. But really the idea was that the outdoor sector was booming. Um, there was a real purpose for, and the consumer was really responding to technology and performance. Athletic was, um, was and has boomed, athleisure. Um, same impact has evolved. And quite frankly, it was the what's next. Um, 
which was really the idea. See a brand out there. Well, I'll, I'll start with the, the the premium space. So the premium space, I think, is is really the guiding light to the outdoor space. The North faces Patagonia's Marmot Mammoth, sure, Prana, Cool. Everyone aspires to these brands. They are um, in most people's wardrobes, and quite frankly, are worn um, when it's raining outside and not to go hike Mount Kilimanjaro. So. What's neat about that is the fact that it's really everyday consumers that actually wear this product, but do they really need a AAA or Gore-Tex jacket when it's raining outside? Right. So, and it's also, if you really think of the demographic of the United States, who can afford to fill their wardrobe with North Face and Patagonia and all the rest? So the idea was to bring a um, affordably priced premium outdoor idea in the outdoor crossover space to America. And that was really kind of the genesis of the idea. And, that, and then it morphed into what was the right brand. You know, Bill, I'm sitting around the booth, and, and if I had to describe anything, it'd be almost like athleisure meets outdoor, or athleisure meets outdoor performance. Is that the, the theme that high tech's going for? Well, interestingly enough, for women's, I'd say 100% accurate. Um, for men's, slightly different. And I think um, we can spend a little bit of time on this. I'll let you determine whether you, if, how deep you want to go. But I'd say on the women's space, absolutely. Um, the women's outdoor comfort zone is if you say, honey, let's go on a hike around the, the lake, she's going to put on her athletic apparel. She does not wear outdoor gear. I think there's a lot of misfire on, in the development of women's outdoor product. There's a lot of shrink it and pink it and women's fishing shirts that are out there. She doesn't really connect with that. She likes her active wear. She likes the comfort of her active wear. But what's missing, quite frankly, is the utilitarian side of it, the zippers, the pockets, the, the comfort. And quite frankly, you know, the, the, the evolution of athleisure is finding the ability to not just wear leggings to work. It's what can she wear in more of a travel setting, a work environment, and a more utilitarian space. So that's really the women's space. On the men's side, quite frankly, um, it is, I call it the perfect, if I were to speak to, to, a, to a buying group, um, I would typically be talking to a, um, the athletic department or the sportswear department, and they would turn to me and say, well, which buyer should you be working with? And I'd actually say the dead middle, because quite frankly, we are sportswear disguises activewear, activewear disguises sportswear, because it is truly, um, or, or even better yet, it's like the Bermuda Triangle between the out, outer wear area as well, because quite frankly, it is the, the, the perfect middle to those areas, which is the opportunity. Right. You know... What we've been seeing is a number of uh, retail, especially verticals, people like Athleta and Lululemon, um, get into the men's space recently. You know, uh, Lululemon, of course, has the uh, ABC pants, uh, you know, the anti-ball crushing pants. I think that's, you know, it's kind of a cute acronym, but, you know, it's been very successful for them. And now Athleta, probably their biggest retail competitor, now has Hill City, which is a men's oriented, but they're taking what they've learned in performance and applied it. As I look again around the booth, it appears you're doing a lot of the same sort of thing with the men's group. Is that what you're seeing? Absolutely. Um, I think the ABC Pant is, you know, kind of one of those um, amazing kind of guiding lights to, to, to the idea of, you know, what can be done here. You know, guys wear five pocket jeans and they don't stretch. And stretch is even kind of a... Um, an uncomfortable word for most guys, and now you're finding that that men are starting to to become more comfortable with stretch. But beyond that, it's the comfort fit, right? There's more. There's a gusset in these pants. There's uh, stretch in them. There's 
Um, pocket, uh, the little pockets for your iPhone. Absolutely, like no, actually, so we put zippers on the seams and um, it's, it's really, we're evolving the look, but on top of it, what we do on top of actually what Lululemon does is we actually, with all of our bottoms currently, we're actually um, putting a, a, a water resistant face on them. So. You spill coffee on yourself, you get caught out in the rain. It, it becomes really an intelligent way to, to offer something new. And we're getting a lot of credit from that from the retail community. You know, you and I are sitting here wearing, you know, basically outdoor-inspired knit shirts. And uh, yesterday you showed me a shirt that had um, inside, on the inside flap, it had a little area where you could clean off your sunglasses or and all that. I found that to be a pretty interesting little feature, you know, to, that includes. Is that what you're looking to do also, include some of these, let's say, value-added sort of features into the clothes? We're putting a premium trim in our product, right. and I think that is critical. I think a lot of um, a lot of companies, a lot of businesses in this industry are always looking for how do I take things out of the product to get down to a price. We're doing quite the opposite. We're finding phenomenal fabric, incredible trim, um, and based on our company's strengths, finding amazing mills and great factories to go put all this together to be able to come out with moderate price premium product. Bill, I want to back up a little bit. You talked about the May Company and a lot of your experience. You know, I, I love talking about really what's going on in retail right now. I, you know, I, I spend a lot of time in research. You know, we see what's going on in terms of the shift from brick and mortar to internet, um, the shift even to more direct-to-consumer, brand-oriented. Tell me a little bit about what your kind of feeling is about what's going on at retail in general. That's a, that's a loaded question. I know it but is. But a phenomenal question because the reality is, you know, the, the world is changing and changing fast. I think the world of Amazon has really, you know, pivoted all of us because um, I think we'd all be lying if we, if we didn't say that Amazon was, wasn't a part of all of our lives. Uh, the reality is, you know, to what degree is apparel part of, of that? Um, I think we're all waiting and seeing. But I think the retailers who are falling behind are the, the retailers that do not have the ability to connect with a consumer in a 360 way or online. Um, I think, um, you know, we're speaking with all of them, some of which are great at brick and mortar, some of which are great at both, and some of which are solely internet only. So um, I think, um, you know, everyone has their own business model. I think we're obviously an equal opportunity wholesaler, quite frankly, but um, it's really interesting how the consumer is shifting and I think how the retailer is having to adapt with that. Would you ever consider a direct-to-consumer model or are you committed to the traditional re uh, wholesaler, dealer, retailer kind of model? Cherokee's very interested in doing um, direct on the high-tech website, so we've talked about that. Um, you know, I, I, I think that is an interesting way to approach it. Um, I'm still open to how we think about that mm -hmm. um, but I think you know I've also seen other um, other retailers or excuse me other brands like Under Armour who um, can also be a little bit of a threat to their retailers by doing so so it's good to be connected with your consumer but you also need to be understand that you are a competitor when you go direct you know I'm not trying to really put you on the spot here but you just mentioned Under Armour and Under Armour over the you know number of these podcasts has been a, a subject that we've talked about a lot you know, and they went down market to Kohl's and, in fact, went also down market on footwear. You know, I don't want to put you on the spot yeah. and I don't want to make sure. any, you know, enemies. But did you think that that was done right? Do you think they did it wrong? Or, you know, what did you think about that entire kind of strategy for Under Armour? Well, I think they had, um, I don't think it was an easy decision for them. I'm sure they spent a lot of time thinking about that. Um, you know, 
I think brands need to evolve. And I think, you know, losing Sports Authority and, you know, with some of the things that had happened in the retail space, um, they saw a viable retailer um, with a great opportunity and felt that they could segregate and segment uh, or segment their line in a sense that they wouldn't do any damage to their business. You know, obviously, we've seen the results of some of the kickback in their stock and everything. It's hard for me to play Monday morning quarterback. I, you know, I, I think it was a very tough decision for them, and I think they're get, getting a lot of heat for it. I actually think that they were um, given too much heat, quite frankly, um, because I think it put yourself in that spot, and I'd like to see what, what move you would have made. Well, you know, the interesting thing is, you know, as somebody, you know, like myself who's been in the industry for a long time and like you, you know, we were we were here when Under Armour, you know, shot up on the scene and, and literally, you know, went to the moon and back, you know, in a very short period of time. So it, it's been an interesting situation. Bill, earlier you talked about, you know, when you went to Thranko and Cherokee, how do you pick a brand to license? What goes into that process? I mean, do you, you know, is it a... You know, is it uh, kind of a almost like a, a show? You know, a number of brands come in, they pitch their idea. How does it work from, when it comes to licensing? Well, having been with you know, again, having been in the industry for a while, and then also coming from the brand space, you know, what was important to us was finding that we found a brand that was a good fit for us. Um, what makes you know, a good fit? Well, you know, again, back to premium product at value price we felt that you know in looking at the shoes and i'm looking at them right now we were the value pro- we are in footwear the value proposition of merrill so where merrill is 120 to 160 dollars the high-tech shoes for the most part are 60 to 80 dollars and doing quite well um, in the united states and the world so we looked at that as a as a direct uh, relationship to apparel and said, well, okay, if we if we look at that and think about the apparel, if North Face is, you know, an Arcteryx and Cool and these other premium brands are the brands that we look up to, what would be an apparel brand that would kind of align with that? And high-tech was, you know, a good connection point. We, you know, we know that, that Merrill is the clear leader. High-tech is the value proposition. People trust them. They have the technology. It was all of what we were looking at. It was the right fit for us, and it was available to us. In many cases, you might say, oh, I'd love that brand, but it's not available to you, or for all those other reasons. We looked at, honestly, um, over 80 brands in terms of what was the right fit for us. Now, it doesn't mean that we had access to all of those, but we certainly scoured the market for the right fit, and we felt that this was the right opportunity and the right connection, and that's how we aligned here. That's interesting because I've always wondered, um, you know, that's a part of the business that I've really never been a part of and I always wondered how a company, you know, decides on who to partner with in terms of licensing. Speaking of partnering though, um, you know, would you guys do any private labeling through this or are you going to really try to keep, you know, brand only? Great question. Uh, We get asked it all the time because I think we're, um, we are impressing the retail community which is um, a testament to, to to our ideas and the team. Um, but it is not our primary goal at all. So it continues to come up, and I'd, I'd simply say that um, high tech is our first and foremost our goal and objective. Um, we do a lot of private label in our company. It is a core competency of Theranko, but we don't want to take our eyes off the ball. It is a secondary opportunity, and but ultimately, high tech is our um, absolute number one focus. I guess the last thing I want to ask you is. When I come back and see you again in the summer at the big, you know, it's a bigger OR show that they, they held every year in August, what will I see then that might be different from what I'm seeing right now? It's a great question. Um, we are now in the development of our third line, 
Um, and I think we've already uh, really moved the needle and getting credit for it with all the development. We're here to, today with our prototypes. This is the first time that we've had a November show with OR. So this is on the front end of, um, I'll call it the winter market. Gotcha. Um, so it's great. It's actually, uh, it's allowing us to kind of pre-line with our retailers um, where the January show almost is kind of like the wrap up. So we'll be back in January, but to your point, the July one stands alone. Um, you know, I, I just, look, we're, as you can, as you look around and see behind me, we are, uh, we're a development house. We put a lot of effort and energy into it. We are all in, um, we're getting credit for it. And I think that's, what's giving the confidence in the retailer that, you know, you're not showing me three shirts and pick one. It's, you are a developer, you have access, you are, have, um, and to some degree overdeveloped a little bit to allow us to really pick out and cherry pick the best of the best to put a, an incredible line together. Thank our guest Lance Penn from Brooklyn Boulders and Bill Hackett from Toronto Outdoor, our sound engineer Tyrone Littman. This podcast would not be possible if not for our partnership with the Washington, D.C. office of cable TV, film, music, and entertainment. Our mayor, Muriel Bowser, our friends at 202 Creates, subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, and be sure to rate us. Until next time, play hard or at least look good doing it. 